space, the final frontier. What's up, everybody? My name's Aaron, and this is Diner Discussions. So, uh, being human is pretty complicated, and it's easy to get wrapped up in what's going on in front of us. But if you ever want to be humbled, uh, I've always just said, look to the sky. You'll realize we are but a speck hurling through space on a slightly bigger speck. Uh, Carl Sagan said it best. He said, uh, each of us is a tiny being permitted to ride on the outermost skin of one of the smallest or smaller planets for a few dozen trips around the local star. And, uh, here to tell us a bit about himself and what lies beyond is Brian Gainsler. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Space has always been like a huge thing. Uh, to me, like it's been one of my interests. Like I'm, you know, not an expert by any means, but I've always been pulled towards it for some reason. Excellent. Well, I don't think I've ever done a podcast before, so I'm excited that you know that you get to be my first. Yeah, yeah, you're the first astrophysicist we've had on, so I guess there's a lot of firsts today. <laughs> Excellent. So, so where are you originally from? Uh, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, so I haven't lived there for a long time. But yeah, I'm from uh, the land down under. So uh, where are you living currently? Uh, Right now, for the last seven years, I have been living in Toronto in Canada. Uh, So how does one come from Australia all the way to Toronto? Uh, In a quite roundabout way. Um, I I, uh, grew up in Australia. I lived in the U.S for 10 years in, in Boston and then back to Australia for eight years and then Toronto. Um, astronomy is a very international field. There's telescopes all over the world. There's different topics that are being worked on all over the world. So if you have this real hunger for knowledge and you sort of just want to get to find out cool things about everything, you, you have to be prepared to travel. Um, a lot of people travel by visiting other places for a few weeks or a few months. But, uh, you know, what, what I was, I'm lucky enough to do and what worked for me and my family is to actually move to different countries and to, to work for extended periods, learning different ways to do things all around the world. And that, that's been just an, an utter privilege to, to have a chance to experience different cultures and to find new discoveries working with different people all the time. So... Um, something that I was kind of wondering about that is like, as you travel, are scientists like different in different places, like culturally, or is like science kind of like a, a thing that kind of is universal? Like how, how does that work? So it's the answer is, it's a great question. The answer is sort of yes and no. I mean, the sky is universal. Mm-hmm. Like the, 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 the constellations that, that you can sort of see, from one country are obviously similar to the complex constellations you can see in another country. And what's more, it's been the same constellation for thousands of years. Um, but there are a couple of big differences. Um, Australia is in the southern hemisphere, so you see the southern half sky. Um, and a country like the US or Canada is in the northern hemisphere, and so you do see different stars. So, for example, uh, anyone in, in, in the US or Canada grew up uh, learning about the Big Dipper, 
and uh, being able to see that in the night sky. Mm-hmm. I never saw the Big Dipper as a kid. I, I was, you know, in my 20s, the first time I saw the Big Dipper, because you can't see it from Australia. Um, so the stars are different in the other two halves of the sky. But uh, the other thing is just there's just lots of different topics in astronomy. There are stars, there are galaxies, planets, uh, nebulae. Uh, there's just so many different aspects of astronomy, and uh, any given place can't possibly be an expert in, in all of them. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that you know a particular um, hospital might be an expert in cancer, or you know might be an expert in diabetes. In the same way, there's particular astronomy institutes around the world that have particular areas of expertise and so uh if you if you go to different places you, you get to focus on different things that's so cool i never even thought about you know like you you not ever growing up seeing the big dipper and stuff and how it's different on that side of the world yeah and you know what it goes the other way too because uh you know here's, here's a secret uh the southern hemisphere actually has more stars um the Earth is, is sitting inside this galaxy, the Milky Way, and we're actually on the edge of the Milky Way, right out in sort of the outer suburbs. And and the Earth is oriented such that the southern hemisphere of the Earth is pointed towards the inner parts of the Milky Way, and the northern hemisphere is actually pointing outwards uh, to, to the uh, outskirts of the Milky Way. So the night sky from a country like Australia just has so many more stars in it than the night sky from North America. And so when... Uh, it's always a real treat when I was living in Australia and an American friend would come and visit and I'd show them the stars and they would just be blown away yeah. um, because it's so, the stars are just so much better. And a lot of people think that it's, oh, it's, the skies are clearer in Australia or it's darker in Australia. Um, it's got nothing to do with that. There's just actually more stars. So so the night, you know, anyone who loves the night sky, you should put it on your, uh, your bucket list to, to get down to the Southern Hemisphere, to South Africa or South America or Australia and New Zealand and go somewhere dark. It's just stunning. Um, if you go out to a dark night in in uh, in Australia, when you walk out of, of the room out into the outdoors, you actually sometimes duck your head because you think you're about to bump your head on something, and then you look up and realize it's actually the Milky Way. Wow. Yeah, we, um, me and my wife actually are supposed to be going um, as long as the finances and you know the COVID travel works out. We're supposed to be going to Africa um, this summer. And I can't wait for one, you know, for that reason to like see the stars at night over there. Yeah, you're in for a real treat. There's just so many stars in the south. So even though I now live in the northern hemisphere, a lot of the telescopes that I use are still in the southern hemisphere in places like Chile um, because a lot of the objects that I want to study can only be seen from uh, the southern half of the world. So speaking of. Uh, telescopes and everything uh the james webb news to me like that you know we're about to see stuff that we've probably never laid eyes on it's just uh, i'm so excited i can't wait uh yeah i think we're all super excited uh you know it's still gonna be a few more months before we start getting images from it but um you know the telescope was explicitly designed to see parts of the universe that we've never been able to see before. Like seeing the very first stars being born and, and you know, seeing Earth-like planets around other, around other suns. So uh, astronomers are beside themselves. Every day we get like another minor update on some particular piece of equipment that's been turned on. And so the excitement just keeps building and building till we actually start getting pictures and, and data in a few more months. It's just an extraordinary technical achievement. Uh, so many things had to work to get the telescope there. And uh, so far it's all working perfectly. 
Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, that the, the layman, the person that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, space travel, they don't really pay attention to it, don't realize all the things that could go wrong. You know, like the, the fact that it made it to where it was supposed to without a hitch so far, you know, it is pretty incredible, I think. The engineers and the scientists who, who design and build these spacecraft are amazing. I'm not involved in actually constructing any of these things, but I, I have worked with people that are. And they have to think through like 10, 20 years beforehand. Mm-hmm. They have to think through every imaginable possible thing that could go wrong. And then they have to build a, a switch or a screw or a lid uh, or a lever that, you know, even, even, if, uh, even if it's in space and even if you use it 100 times, it's guaranteed that it won't break. And then you have to say, well, okay, I've made all those guarantees, but that's not enough. You have to assume that something will break and you have to build in like a redundancy or a backup so that no matter what goes wrong, there's another way of doing things. And you can say, well, that's annoying, but now we'll switch over to plan B. So just the the level of thought and and design that goes into these things, the amount of testing they do is unbelievable. And the other thing to recognize is that you can do all the testing you want here on Earth, but we don't have an environment on Earth that, that matches what it's like to be uh, in, in, in zero gravity out in, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And so a lot of it's very careful thinking and simulation and strategizing about what it will be like. And it's just, it's just miraculous, uh, just a testament to people's perseverance and brilliance that things have gone so smoothly. Yeah, and it's not like we can just fly out there and, you know, put a couple guys in the, <laughs> out there to, to fix it. Um, so, yeah, the the over-engineering everything is is incredible and the fact that they've been working on this for so long and and the fact that the mirrors take so long to adjust because they move in such tiny increments like just fascinates me yeah so everything moves really really slowly because if you move things fast it could jam or tear and then you're you're sort of screwed um yeah people often say like you know why don't we just go and repair it i don't think they appreciate just how far away this thing is um Many people remember the Hubble Space Telescope, which is, is still going strong. It's more than 30 years old now. And every few years, uh, the, the Hubble would used to get a grease and oil change. They'd send some astronauts up on the space shuttle, and they'd sort of fix the broken panels, and they'd, they'd take out an on-camera and put a new one in and, and basically clean it up. But the Hubble Space Telescope is only, you know, 300 kilometers uh, above our heads. I mean, that's that's like, you know, if you could drive there, it would take you like two or three hours. So I guess that's, sorry, in in miles for your American listeners, you know, it's barely 200 miles above our heads. And that's, that's nothing. Um, but the James Webb is millions of kilometers away. So there's just no way we can travel there. Like, it's, it's much farther away than any human has ever traveled. And it's just completely impractical to ever visit it and, and fix it and then come back. So, uh, yeah, once, it, once it's launched, that's it. Uh, everything we could ever do to make it work ha- has been done. Yeah, and we don't have like a backup one too. <laughs> if something happened, you know, wrong in launch or whatever too, so that was kind of nerve wracking. I know there was a lot of people holding their breath that have been working on it forever. Yeah, um, uh, I, I was so nervous. I just, you know, so many things could have gone wrong. But the, the really exciting thing is that the launch was so perfect that the the so that there was the rocket itself, which launched the James Webb Space Telescope. And then uh, the telescope itself has its own little rockets with a, a limited supply of fuel. And the main thing that sets how long the telescope can, can last for before we have to turn it off is how much fuel it has. Because uh, we're, we have to, it has to stay at a particular place in the solar system mm-hmm. uh, in order to work. And um, 
if it drifts, every time it drifts away from that spot, we have to use up fuel to move it back to that spot. But uh, the launch was uh, so perfect that the telescope had to barely use any fuel at all. And right. so it's arrived its its new position with its fuel tanks, you know, almost almost to the brim. And that means that it will be able to, to last for a very long time. I mean, originally before launch, they were saying, you know, five years. And then they were saying, well, like, uh, you know, we should have 10 years worth of fuel. And now people are sort of speculating that, you know, 10 years for sure, but, you know, maybe even 15 or 20 years worth of fuel. So that's that's just amazing. That's so exciting. Yeah, the um, I, I didn't I was watching a documentary kind of like a little quick video about it, um, about how it has to get cold um, for it to function properly. And so they, they have to block the sun for so many, you know, weeks or whatever. And I just thought that was incredible too. You have to block out the sun and the earth and the moon. Um, because they all are, are quite warm. Even the moon, which is pretty cold, uh, is pretty warm compared to the temperature that you need to get the telescope down to, to, to make it work. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's looking in the infrared. Essentially, it's the telescope has heat goggles. Uh, and obviously, if there's something hot, if, if, if I'm wearing heat goggles, and then you put, um, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to look around in the jungle at night looking with my heat goggles, and then you hold like, um, you know, a giant um, a flame in front of my face, uh, all I'm going to be able to see is that flame. Mm-hmm. And I won't be able to see whatever it is that I'm looking for in the jungle. And so that's the problem here. Like if you, if the telescope's wearing its night vision or its heat goggles, um, and the sun or the earth or the moon are, are, in, are in the way, then you just can't see any of these faint things. Um, so you have to block them out. And then you have to, even the telescope itself, if the telescope is too hot, then the telescope's glow itself gets in the way of being able to see other faint things. So the reason why everything has to be so cold and why you have to block out the Earth and the sun and the moon is so that it's, it's heat goggles so it's night vision can actually work and it can see these very faint objects that it's trying to study. Yeah, it's it, it kind of reminds me of being in the city versus the country. Um you know, not being able to see the sky, like how it just kind of, the light takes everything away. It's, it's not too different from that. Yeah. It's, it's the same, it's the same sort of issue. And, you know, moreover, even if you're out in, in, in the country in the countryside, uh, if you're in a room with the lights on and you walk straight out, uh, the back door and into your backyard, and look at the sky, you won't be able to see the stars because your eyes have, your eyes are, have, were dilated because you were in a bright room and it takes about 15 minutes before you can start to see, um, the stars properly. Um, and it's, so it's the same with, with the James Webb Space Telescope. Even once you block the Earth and the sun and the moon, it then takes some time for, for it to cool down, essentially for its eyes to get used to the dark. Yeah. Um, so what is, some, what is like the, the, the one thing that you're um, hoping that we discover with this new telescope? Um. There's lots of things, but I guess the, the one thing that I'm most excited about is is one of the, the main reasons it was built, which is to see the very first stars being turning on. Um, we, we know that the universe is very environmentally friendly and that it likes to recycle, and that we know that uh, when we see a star being formed out of a cloud of gas, that cloud of gas formed from old stars. And... Um, uh, those stars formed from the generation of stars before them, and those stars formed from the generation of stars before them. So people like Carl Sagan have said that, you know, we're all made of stardust, 
And that's not just being poetic, it's actually true. Um, our sun and the solar system formed out of a big, glowing, collapsing cloud of gas. Uh, every atom in our body used to be part of that cloud of gas. And that cloud is was left over from some star that died billions of years ago. So that, that in its own is an amazing fact. And it sort of says that every star is made of the remnants of the generation that came before it. But the universe hasn't been around forever. The universe is around 14 billion years old. And so you can't just keep saying that forever. You have to have gotten to a point where there was the first star. And then you ask the question, well, what did that star form out of? Because there wasn't any debris of stars before that star to make that star. Mm -hmm. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to see those first stars. Those, those stars are long gone. Um, they, they were born and died billions of years ago. But because um, light only travels at a finite speed, incredibly, um, some of the light from those stars that were born billions of years ago, those stars are so far away, the light is only just reaching us now. So the James Webb Space Telescope and other telescopes like it uh, are actually time machines. Uh, they don't only see very far away, but they can also see a long way back in time because something that's very far away, the light takes a lot of time to get to us. So the James Webb Te Space Telescope will be the first time that we'll be able to, be, to capture the light from these very first stars being born. And we'll then finally understand, you know, how did it all begin? You know, where did the first stars come from? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. And when I say we don't know, I don't mean that we have no idea. What I mean is that we have four or five different ideas <laughs> and we don't know for those is right. And, um, and, and the, the data from the James Webb Space Telescope will hopefully be able to tell us which one is right. But uh, if experience is any guide, uh, often the universe is smarter than we are, and the answer will be, you know, none of the above, it'll be something else, something completely unexpected, but will turn out that multiple of our ideas are at play and, and, you know, they're interacting in some complicated way. So I'm really excited both to see the pictures of the first stars. They won't be spectacular pictures, they'll just be little dots, but just knowing what they are, just having an arrow pointing to something and knowing that this is one of the first stars in the universe will be, I think, incredibly exciting. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's amazing times we're living in right now. It's kind of exciting to be alive. Yeah, it, 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 it's, you know, I, I pinch myself thinking that, like, you know, I'm, you know, this isn't something that I'm reading about in textbooks, that, you know, that it's it's people, that it's me and people I know that actually do this. Of course, the, uh, the, the big game in town, if you're a professional astronomer, is trying to actually get to be the one that points the James Webb Space Telescope. Um it picks what to look at, not just based on someone in some controller and deciding what's interesting, but essentially it's driven in a democratic process and that anybody in the world can write a letter to NASA saying, please look at this object with the James Webb Space Telescope. Anybody, you don't have to have professional qualifications, uh, anybody at all. And they ask for requests once per year. Um, it's not as easy as it sounds because uh, those letters that you write uh, are uh, all go uh, to an expert panel and the panel reads all the letters and, and weighs up uh, the different arguments for looking at different things and makes a decision uh, uh, based on what they think is the most exciting ideas and which are most likely to lead to discoveries. And so this process is super competitive. Um, uh, I forget the exact number, but I think only about one in 10 of the ideas actually gets approved. Um, so I have a lot of friends who are very disappointed and I, I didn't, I didn't 
participate in, in, in the request for this first round. I had my hands full with other projects, but lots of my friends uh, asked for time uh, on the James Webb Space Telescope and then got the sad news that their idea had been rejected. And I have a much smaller number of friends who got the very good news that their idea had been accepted. And now it's sometime in the next few months later this year, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will point at their object and they will be the ones that have sent the data and they will be the first eyes to ever look upon some new exciting discovery. Um, the, the data are released to everybody in the world um, about a year later. So if you want to announce some exciting discovery or make a pretty picture or do something of your own with the data, you've got about a year. And after that, uh, the data are handed out, to, the pictures are handed out to anybody who's interested. That's got to be exciting to be the first human to see something, you know, like that. It's incredible. Yeah, so, I, um, you know, I didn't apply to the James Webb Space Telescope, but I have had that experience with other telescopes. And it's awesome looking at the screen and thinking, I am the only person in the world, I'm the first person in history and the only person in the world who has ever seen this star or looked at this object. And, you know, one of the, the fundamental principles of astronomy is to share what you know, to share your knowledge with your colleagues, and to share it with the public um, and to tell people about it. And so you sort of have this conflicted emotion. On the, on the one hand, uh, you know, I'm the only one who knows about this and I don't want to tell anybody else. On the other hand, uh, I know I have to share it. So, you know, the way I deal with those two conflicting emotions is I sort of say, I'm just going to take five minutes for myself to sit here and think I'm the only person in the world who knows about this and I'm going to enjoy that feeling for five minutes and then I'm going to start sending emails or creating web pages and tell everybody else about it. So um, I've always kind of wondered, I've never really done any research on it, how... How do um, people name things? Is it like whoever discovers it gets to name it? How does that work? Uh, this was quite a, a complicated process. Um, it depends on what it is. Um, if you find an asteroid, then you can name it. Um, uh, and there's an official register run by an organization called the International Astronomical Union that registers the names of asteroids. So some people name asteroids after themselves. Sometimes they name it after their, their you know, their spouse or uh, a child or a friend. Sometimes they name it after, you know, their favorite band or favorite TV show or anything they want. So, you know, there's, you know, you think of every, every famous pop star or pop culture phenomenon or musician or whatever, they probably have an asteroid named after them. Um, if you find a comet, then it's named, if you're the first person to find it, it's actually named after you. So you've probably heard of like Comet Halley, uh, you know, that was named after Halley. So if you want something named after you, then, um, then a comet is the way to go. Um, if you find uh, a planet, then they get named after uh, characters from different mythologies. So like, you know, Greek and Roman and, and, and indigenous uh, stories. Uh, and if we're talking about a star, then you can basically call it anything you want. Uh, normally it gets some sort of catalog number or phone number that's based on its coordinates in the sky. But if you want to call it something else, uh, then you can. So uh, most stars and galaxies have catalog numbers, but there are um, others that have names. So like there's a galaxy that looks like a whirlpool and it's called the Whirlpool Galaxy. And um, uh, other people name planets and stars, or sorry, stars and galaxies after, you know, their favorite character from a movie or something like that. So it really depends on what sort of object. For some of them, you can give it any name you want. Some you have to follow particular rules, and some it gets named after you. 
So let's kind of go back to the beginning. Um, I, I've watched a couple of videos that you um, were in where people were asking you questions. And uh, so your parents gave you a, a book. Um, what was that called that got you into? Um, a... uh, so, yeah, my parents bought me a book called The Album of Astronomy, and that just blew me away. Like I, I had lots of books as a kid, and uh, they were on all sorts of great stuff like volcanoes and trains and all the things that a little boy that likes science might enjoy reading. But then when they got me this one book on astronomy, I just put all the other books aside. I just could not stop reading it because it was just so amazing. Yeah, it's, there's something, I don't know, there's something about space. Like, it, I don't know if it's because it's it's vast or because it's just, there's so much to it that we don't know. Like, there's something super appealing about it compared to other sciences. Uh, yeah, so that's what, that, 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 those things that, that it's vast and, uh, and, and that there's so much that we don't know are exactly the reasons why it appealed to me. Um, as a kid, I was always sad when, you know, if there was a movie that I liked, I was always sad when the movie ended. Like, you know, that's the end of the, of the movie. Like, what happens to the characters after the end of the movie? And it was the same with finishing a book. Like, I didn't want a book, to, if I was enjoying a book, um, I didn't want it, want it to end. Um, I remember as a kid reading The Hobbit and, uh, you know, I was just so sad when the book ended and I was so happy to find out that there was like a, a sequel in the form of, um, of Lord of the Rings. Um, and so when I found out about astronomy, that really captured for me um, sort of a workaround for this fear of, of, of things ending and there being, um, there being no more. Um, I love the fact that when astronomy not only does the universe go on forever, but there's just so many discoveries to make and we were never going to run out of discoveries. So essentially I have this, I still have this fear of being bored or of the story ending. And astronomy it, to me is the ultimate um, outlet because I'm never going to run out of things to discover and the universe is, is never going to, to, as far as we know, the universe you know goes on for a long way. So to me, it's, it's about saving off, you know, reaching some sort of end of the story. Yeah. What's also cool about it too, to me is that like once we discover something new, it unlocks a whole bunch of other stuff that we don't know. So it kind of, you know, we're never, every time we, we, uh, we get an answer, there's 15 more questions that we don't know. That's, that's the other great part of it. Like you seek you seek out to, to answer sort of mystery A and you might answer mystery A, but along the, along the way you create mystery B. So I love the fact that the answers are never what you expect and that, um, and that often uh, you end up having more questions at the end than you did at the start. Uh, it, to me, it's like the, the ultimate crossword puzzle. And every time you sort of fill in the last letter of the crossword puzzle, it like flips over and there's another blank grid for you to work on. Um, so I really enjoy that aspect too. It's not, it's not clean cut. Uh, the answers aren't black and white, but it's just all about understanding the universe a little tiny little bit better than, than we did before. Yeah. I, I, um, started, I've, I've always been interested. And then when I was, um, a teenager, I think it was like late high school, like probably junior, senior year, my grandpa started watching like Nova and um like some some of the history channel stuff that wasn't like pseudoscience or you know all um you know aliens all the time but um uh and then some of the NASA documentaries that they had and 
we started watching them together and that kind of became our thing. And when, you know, he got in his eighties, he started asking me, you know, questions like, well, uh, what if we're not alone? Like, what does that mean? And, and all this stuff, um, that he had never really been interested in, um, when he was younger and when I was younger. And so it was kind of these, it led to all these really cool, like life reflections that we had together um, at, you know, two way different parts of our lives, like me just getting started and him kind of coming to the twilight of his life. Um, and it was kind of a beautiful memory that I'll always cherish. And it was all because of, you know, just the pondering on space. That's very special. And I know that a lot of, a lot of astronomers, their initial relationship with the stars began with a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or something like that. So yeah, you're, you're lucky to have those those special memories um, of, of being introduced to the sky with someone that you loved and respected. Yeah, he he kind of got you know to that point where you're not afraid to ask harder questions because the test is coming up pretty quick. You know, <laughs> like that's how it goes. <laughs> you know. So he was he was really curious, and I think he was trying to answer some questions he had about maybe like the his life coming to an end, and if there was something after, and all that. And I, I guess he felt like there was some answer out there, you know, among the stars that if he could just just watch a documentary, it might answer it. That's great. Yeah, my dad is fascinated by the stars too. He's always sending me articles like saying, did you see this? He's so excited when I say, not only do I see that, but I like know the person who did it. I think he loves the fact that he can read about something and know that I'll give him some sort of inside story or inside gossip about what really happened. That's cool, yeah. Um, I, I've, because of this show, I've actually you know made some wonderful connections with people, and it's hilarious because we were watching the Super Bowl and uh, there was a commercial uh, with a guy on there, and um, my wife was like, "This is funny," and I'm like, "Yeah, he's going to be on the show in a couple months." <laughs> like, it just blows my mind, like how that you know works when, once you start networking with people. Yeah, and uh, well, I, I didn't appear any Super Bowl ads, but I, I can I can understand how excited you were by that. I do love the um, uh, you know, there's a scene in the movie Elf where, um, you know, a Santa Claus appears in the department store and Will Ferrell is playing like this elf on North Pole is pointing at him and saying, I know him, I know him. And I feel like that's me in, in astronomy. Like part of the, the excitement is, you know, as a kid, I would, I would hear about these big discoveries, you know, from some famous scientist. And now when I'm watching the news or reading the paper, um, you, know, you know, my wife says to me over breakfast, oh, did you see they discovered this? And I can sort of read it and go, I, I know him or I know I know her or whatever. And I love the fact that, um, you know, I sometimes I'm the one that makes the discovery and that's even more awesome. But often, uh, you know, I know that someone has been working on this for years. I remember them talking about it at a, at a conference or at a workshop years ago and thinking, oh, that will never work. And then to, to know that they persisted and that it worked and that now that they've made that big discovery, it's, it's just great to be able to see your friends and your colleagues uh, be celebrated and, and be focused on in the media for, for these things. Because it always sounds like a, a discovery drops in your lap. Um, you know, it's a bit like these bands that you sort of say are overnight sensations. But, you know, we all know that they were working, working the bars and, you know, playing for years and horrible little venues. And it's exactly like that in science as well. Uh, you know, when someone 
looks like something landed in their lap. Uh, it's normally because they were trying that idea for years, if not decades, and just did not give up, and finally it paid off. Yeah, it's it, from the outside looking in, it seems – I'm sure it's competitive um, at times too, but it seems like if you – if one of you succeeds, you all succeed kind of together because you're all kind of got the same goal of discovery. Yeah, mostly. Look, there are there are some rivalries and some competitions. I mean, there are some big prizes in astronomy. I, I mean, prizes in the metaphorical sense, like big big sort of discoveries to make, and those then do lead to real prizes, like Nobel Prize. And so there's often, you know, two or three groups that are all racing against the clock to try and be the first. So in that sense, um, it can get somewhat competitive. But I'd like to think that that's sort of the exception more than the rule. And most of astronomy is very collaborative. And if, if someone is sort of stuck on something, someone else will often just say, why don't you have all my data? And they just email them all of their, their graphs and their, their pictures and all the rest of it. Or they just say, why don't we do this together? So um, there are some competitive aspects of astronomy. I, I personally try and sort of steer clear of those areas, uh, sorry, those areas, because I find... I just find it very stressful, and, and I find that when you rush, you're more likely to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd much more, more, rather work with someone because, you know, two brains are better than one, and it's often real fun to just be sparking off somebody else uh, face-to-face or, or over the phone. So uh, generally, it's a very collegial field. Um, what I like to joke about is that the reason why it's collegial is because mostly the stakes are pretty low. Um, it's not like there's different groups who are racing to cure cancer or to change the world or to, to figure out how to solve global warming. You know, it's trying to understand, you know, whether a particular galaxy weighs 2 trillion tons or 4 trillion tons. Um, and, you know, so it's important for us, but we all know that the, the fate of the world doesn't depend on, on us. So obviously when people are trying to win Nobel Prizes, you can argue the stakes then are pretty high. But for a lot of what we do, it's just about figuring something out. And, uh, you know, people are happy to share the glory and, and to work together. And I really like that. And what that means is that, you know, thanks to my work, as well as having all of my friends that I have here in Toronto that I've met, you know, through my, through my personal interests and my social life, I have uh, work friends, not just, you know, in my corridor, uh, but from all over the world. And, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate to have friends from so many different cultures with so many different perspectives from so many different countries. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from them and, you know, they, they teach me a, uh, a lot about how to see the world. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm traveling, I've always got friends that I can drop in on and, and visit. Yeah, that's gotta be nice. I, um, I, I was kind of watching some TikToks the other day about people arguing about whether or not, you know, space exploration and, um, studying the stars is, beneficial to humans in the long run and i was um wondering like why do you think it's important to study space when there's so many problems here on earth yeah so we we get asked that question a lot um and when you uh you know doing astronomy costs money i have to i have staff that work for me and so i have to pay them salaries uh and when i go to um a telescope, I have to buy a plane fare and pay for hotels. And when I build a new telescope, I have to buy all the equipment. So so that money has to come from somewhere. And that money comes from, from research grants that the government gives us. And just like I said for, for time on, on James Webb, you basically have to write a letter to the government uh, telling them why they should give me money for astronomy. And I'm competing against people who are doing all sorts of things, who are 
you know, solving climate problems or curing diseases. And so there's a section in, in your letter where you have to explain why you should spend money on what you do. And if I said, if I wrote in that part, you know, because this is interesting or, you know, it's cool, then I'm never going to get any money because there's someone else whose work is not just interesting, but actually is, is useful. So we have to think a lot about why this is worth doing. Um, and, and there's quite a lot of reasons for that. There is firstly, uh, uh, you know, just the, the general philosophical reason that it is a privilege to be able to look at the sky and think about what it all means. And, uh, you know, I think the sign of, of an advanced uh, cultured society is one that says, we're not going to spend all our money just on, on medicine uh, or health or education, but we're going to spend a small amount of money on, on other things too. And so, uh, you know, no one wants to live in a society that doesn't have, have music or, or, or art uh, or literature. And in the same way, uh, we want to live in a, in a society where we're learning interesting things about the universe. But I, I think another important answer is that when I build a telescope, I don't order a telescope out of a catalogue. I build a telescope from scratch and I'm building a telescope that has never been built before. So every time we do an experiment in astronomy, we're, we're building some type of technology that's never been done before. And when you uh, have to do that, you are asking different companies and vendors to design things that uh, they haven't designed before. And that often leads to new discoveries. So for example, uh, it was the astronomers who wanted to understand whether there were stars in the sky that emitted X-rays that led to the technology that's now in every single airport X-ray scanner in the world. Um, it was technology for building telescope domes, which have to curve quite sharply and be very robust, that led to the technology from the same companies that now allows us to build completely ridiculous roller coasters that you know take you through all sorts of loops. Um, it's, it's technology that was designed to uh, search for pulsing signals from the sky that is now used to do rapid computing to design vaccines and proteins to cure diseases. So even though astronomy isn't directly trying to solve these problems itself, it's so uh, leading edge, it's so state-of-the-art, that it just leads to new technological developments that have all sorts of other applications. Um, the, the other thing is, is that uh, astronomy is, you know, I mentioned that uh, astronomy is a bit like a crossword puzzle. Um, I, I like to think of astronomy as a really hard crossword puzzle because you know if you're if you're a chemist and you want to understand how a particular chemical works, you can you can mix it in with something else and see what happens to it. But if you're a geologist and you have a rock and you want to know what's inside it, you can cut it in half. But if I see a star, I can't cut that star in half. I can't smash it into another star. I can't do anything. All I can do is look at it from thousands or millions of light years away. So I sort of see astronomy like a really hard crossword or like a really hard Sudoku. You've got to figure things out with almost no clues. And so what that means is that all of the students I have who graduate with astronomy degrees, they're like sort of the ultimate MacGyver scientists. They all have these particular skill sets where they can solve very complicated problems with almost no information. And so most or, or many of my students don't become astronomers. Uh, they end up working in, in, in medicine or in uh uh, you know, in remote sensing or in finance, and then they apply these very unique skills to these other fields. So astronomy is this incubator uh, where we're providing to the world uh, uh, some some people with, with very special skills and very special uh, intuition to allow them to solve very complicated problems in a lot of other areas. 
So I'm always amazed when I read about some scientists or technologists working in some completely different area, and then I read that they had a degree in astronomy. And at first I'm amazed, and I think, oh, that makes sense, because it was astronomy that's taught them how to solve problems. So I think there's quite a few different reasons why astronomy is important. Um, We're not directly trying to cure cancer, but we are working on uh, things that will lead to major breakthroughs. Um, Another thing I say is that, you know, if you were trying to... uh, um, if you're trying to build uh, uh, some new uh, device that can fly, you know, before before there were planes, uh, you know, you might be thinking, how do I make something fly? Um, now, no amount of playing with uh, a car and trying to, you know, make the tires on your car better or make the engine better or, or whatever, no amount of playing with improving your car is going to create a plane. You have to go in a completely different direction to make a plane. And so... I think that's important to bear in mind. Like, if you're trying to cure cancer, it's important that there are people working on that. If you're trying to deal with global warming, it's important that there are people working on global warming. But sometimes the solution comes from a completely different direction, and it's really important that you have smart people just trying to answer really hard questions because you don't know where uh, the next game-changing idea is going to come from. I think it's something about the human spirit, too, that's really... um different than anything else that's kind of come before as far as like you know animals um is that we saw the moon and we were like i want to touch that you know like that's something unique that's humans are just special i think in that way it's always been something to overcome you know our own flaws and and stuff to get somewhere that probably weren't ever meant to reach in all honesty I think you're right. I think there's an the element there of that too. Um, you, you know, there was a famous quote, uh, you know, by a mountain climber that they, you know, they wanted to climb that mountain because it was there. Um, and I think there's an element that in astronomy too, like we want to look out at space because it's there. And it's basically saying, I'm out here. You don't know what I'm composed of. You don't know how I work. And that's sort of, to some extent, an affront to our, our, our desire to understand things. Uh, and so, yeah, when we see something up in the sky and we don't know what it is, there's a certain group of people who say that's unacceptable, that we don't know how that works. And I need to know how that works. Yeah. It's like the same people that, um, when we play RPGs on video games, we have to discover the whole world, even though, you know, you can just go straight to the missions of each level and finish the game. I think there's something beautiful in that, you know, like, always being hungry for knowing what's just beyond reach and what's just behind the curtain. I love that analogy um, because, you know, I've certainly finished, I've finished the game uh, and then I want to go back and, you know, walk through the the castle or the landscape and look at all the different places I didn't have time to look at. And uh, there's, there's an analogy there too. And that, as I've said, there's a, a real culture in astronomy of sharing data and, Often someone has said, you know, I analyzed this picture from my telescope and here are the five galaxies in the picture and I have measured everything about them, the end. And then they say, but if for some reason you want my data, uh, here it is, I'll stick it on a website. And what happens more and more now is someone else downloads those data and they uh, reanalyze them in a different way and they discover something totally new that was sitting in somebody else's data. So it's a bit like finishing the game and then going back and sort of looking through all the rooms you didn't have to check before and finding some cool Easter egg or something like that. And I love those sort of discoveries because it sort of illustrates that um, 
there's so much richness in, in these data and that there's always something new you can squeeze out of a picture of the sky, even when you think that all the measurements that you wanted to make have already been made. Yeah, it's got to be exciting. Like, and, and what's what's crazy about space that can often break your brain if you're you know kind of new to to thinking about space is that there's stuff that we know we don't know, and then there's stuff that we don't even know that we don't know. That's right, and so. Uh, I think that one of the key parts of being a successful astronomer and a successful scientist is having a really strong background, not just on the topic that you're interested in, but a range of other topics as well. So if I'm uh, if I'm only interested in galaxies and I look at a picture of the sky and I look at the galaxy that's in the middle of the picture, I might miss the fact that there's this extraordinary comet uh, off to the side. And I would only notice that if I actually knew something about comets as well. So I think it's really important when you're looking for these unknown unknowns that you, you can't predict what it is that your, your data are going to, to give you. But I think it's really important that you have as broad uh, knowledge as possible. Uh, there's another famous quote, and I forget who said it, but they said, uh, you know, I've been very successful and I've been successful because I've had a lot of luck. And then the last part of the quote is, and I found that the harder I work, the more luck that I have. And I think that's really true. That a lot of discoveries uh, are lucky, but the person who made them noticed it uh, because they were ready for unknown unknowns. Because they had a very broad uh, uh, knowledge and broad experience, they were ready for the unknown unknown. And so when it flew past them, they recognized it and grabbed it. Yeah, and with with the technology that's out now and as far as like the the person sitting in their home has more access to information than ever before in human history. Um, I feel like there's a lot of people that are sitting on the couch that can make discoveries too. Now you don't have to, uh, I'm not saying that that's like the route to go to understand everything, but I'm just saying like, it's kind of like music, you know, um, everybody has an iPhone or a smartphone of some sort that can, they can record on. And so that has unleashed, you know, all these people that never had access to music because they didn't, you know, grow up. Uh, having money to buy instruments and recording equipment and all this stuff, they're able to make these beautiful masterpieces they never would have been able to. Um, I feel like the science can can be that way too. Yeah, and there's a number of aspects. There's a number of ways in which um, people who aren't professional astronomers are making really important contributions to astronomy these days. There's a lot of uh, enthusiastic, um, you know, weekend astronomers who have pretty good telescopes in their backyard. And this turns out to be really important for a number of reasons. Uh, so, for example, uh, we're always looking for new stars that are, are flaring or exploding or, or doing something unusual. And you know, what we'd really love to do is, as professional astronomers, is to monitor every star in the sky 24 hours a day. Uh, we can't do that for a number of reasons. It could be cloudy, um, plus we just don't have enough telescopes to do it. But there's now a pretty large and sophisticated network of uh, weekend astronomers or backyard astronomers or amateur astronomers, whatever you want to call them, uh, who uh, work with professional astronomers with small telescopes in their, in their gardens and, uh, and to keep an eye on all sorts of stars. And as soon as they see something interesting happening, they, they send an email and then the big telescopes get on it. So that sort of contribution is really vital. And then something which is even cooler is this idea of citizen science which is for, for not people with telescopes, but anyone just with an internet connection. 
there's a lot of projects that just have so much data that it's impossible for us to look through them all. Uh, so what we do is, is we just put the data online and we set up some simple tasks for people to sort of click A or B. And we just ask people when they have five minutes to spare or 10 minutes or whatever, just to click on a few uh, questions. And so it might be a very simple question like, is this galaxy red or is it blue? Or you know, is this object moving or is it still? And it turns out that if you have enough people, even 10 minutes on this, you can crank through enormous amounts of data. Uh, now, there are lots of questions like that that we can just do with a computer algorithm, but it turns out that the human eye and the human brain are still better than an algorithm for many types of classification and pattern questions. And so the ones that we can do with a computer, we do with a computer. But the ones we can't, um, uh, we, we give to the public, and the citizen scientists just crank through these at an amazing rate. So some of my own research has uh, only been possible because of the, the fantastic and enthusiastic work of huge numbers of citizen scientists who just volunteer their time to, to classify and study uh, all of uh, these objects. Yeah, I think it's there's some to that. And also, like, you were talking about how, um, you know, it's better to have, like, a broad understanding of a lot of different things to look at things in, like, a different, um, you know, light. Um it's funny how people that don't have a scientific background will look at something like different and see patterns that someone who has studied it their whole life wouldn't see. Like my wife, I've watched college basketball, college football, all these things my entire life. Well, a couple years ago, uh, we started doing, you know, the March Madness pickums, and, um, like, I can't remember exactly like her formula for stuff, but she noticed like the last couple of years, like, the blue jerseys would beat the red jerseys like, you know, three out of four times. So if she picked mostly blue jerseys, like she had, she would beat me every year. I would have never seen that because I see it as, you know, I watched the game and how the shoot, who's hot, all this stuff, all these other, all this other data that, you know, she threw out and was just looking at something specific that appealed to her because she doesn't watch sports. Yeah. And that's, that's, I really like working with, with other people. I, I think I've done one project in my entire 30 year career where I did it on my own. Uh, but every other project I've done in a team, sometimes the team has been two or three people and sometimes it's, you know, a hundred people. But I think my record is there's one project I did, which involved more than 3000 people. But, uh, the best part about a team is that you have all these different perspectives and, you know, one person will, will see one aspect of, of what you're doing and another will see another. And then you have like a good sort of, debate as to, as to which one of these ideas is right or whether we should do them both. And I really enjoy that back and forth, the sort of metaphorical standing in front of the blackboard and trying to figure it out together. It's just so much fun compared to just sitting on your own. Yeah. Um, just yeah. like watching watching a basketball game on your own is not when you're as fun as watching it with, with a spouse or with a friend. It's, it's exactly the same. Oh, yeah. I've, I've definitely felt that this last year. I, um, so most of my life I've – I've loved the Oklahoma Sooners uh, football team and we've always met at my grandparents' house and watched that game. And uh, my grandpa was the other person I could sit and just talk to about football because everybody else loved watching them win. Didn't really want to talk, you know, shop. They didn't like want to talk about, you know, like stats and stuff like that. Well, my grandpa loved it. Well, when he passed away, Watching games has always been, you know, kind of weird for me. So I can totally understand, like, having someone to talk to like that, too, and 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 
and uh, not doing it by yourself. It's two totally different things, you know, to- two totally different feelings. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, science is seen as something that's sort of quite mysterious and sort of like the high priest, but, but the emotions that scientists feel and the sorts of reasons we do what we do are, are just so um, similar to the same sorts of things that get that other people out of bed every morning and that, and that they enjoy and that they're passionate about. So speaking of something exciting, um, can you tell us why FRBs are exciting? Uh, so yeah, fast, uh, FRB stands for fast radio bursts. And the reason why it's exciting is because that's pretty much all we know about them. We, we found these things 15 years ago, and we know that they're fast, that uh, they emit radio waves, and they're bursts. So um, there's lots of things in astronomy that we understand well. There's lots of things where we still understand most of it. But there's very few genuine mysteries where we just are completely stumped. And I love the fact that fast radio bursts are a complete mystery. That once every 60 seconds or so, there's a random flash, a very bright flash of radio waves, like a burst of static, you can think of it as, somewhere on the sky, different position every time. And we just don't know what they are. Um, Part of the challenge is that by the time it happens, you look over there and go, what was that? And you, you turn your head and it's gone. And then another one goes off. Uh, in the other direction, and you turn your head and it's gone. Uh, so they're really hard to track down because they're only on for a few milliseconds. Uh, we've now worked out that they're incredibly powerful explosions of some sort that are happening uh, at very great distances of millions of light years, uh, but we don't know what they are. And I, I just love, just, just like watching uh, you know, a good mystery uh, series on TV, uh, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it's about you know the clues and trying to piece together what happened and trying to fix it out. So if we were to have like a, some sort of radio signal or, or some signal um, sent to us from uh, another species of some sort that was intelligent, how would we, how would we determine that versus like, you know, something natural? Yes, that's a great question. And it's one that uh, astronomers spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, we know the limits to what natural processes can produce. We know what color they are. We know how bright they are. We know how fast they can turn on or off. And the presumption is, is that if there's another intelligent species out there, uh, they know that too. They know exactly what a natural uh, phenomenon looks like. And so if you were trying to send a signal and you wanted the person receiving it to know that it was artificial and that it wasn't a natural signal, you would create a signal that would have properties that could not be explained through natural means. So, uh, for example, uh, we know that there are objects that pulse pretty regularly, like clocks or lighthouses that are natural and that float in the sky. So having a beacon that just simply blinks on and off every three seconds, that wouldn't be a great strategy uh, because we see things like that and uh, we don't think that they're artificial. But if you had a beacon, for example, that counted out prime numbers, uh, you know, 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, that's something that no natural process could create. So if you wanted someone to attract your attention, if you want to attract someone's attention, you would create a beacon with prime numbers. Uh, and similarly, if we detected uh, some flashing star that was counting out prime numbers from uh, the sky, then uh, I think we would very quickly conclude that it must be artificial. So the key is designing something that cannot be explained as a natural process. I think one thing that's frustrating as... Um someone who's fascinated in, in space is like not being able to reach things to study them better. Um, 
because you know that annoying uh not being able to move faster than the speed of light thing <laughs> I, i'm not sure if i understand your question i was just saying like um you know how like we we want to discover like we want to get out there into space and uh find things quickly you know and not take lifetimes for us to discover stuff that's far away and uh, all, we can only move at the speed of light. I said that's kind of annoying. And um, it, do you think, like, is there anything that could go f- faster than the speed of light, or is that just something that we'll never be able to get past you, like, in your opinion or, like, what you found? Well, I, I hesitate to say never because, you know, the, the universe is a complex place that continues to amaze us. But based on our current understanding of the law of physics, uh, there is is nothing that can travel faster than than the speed of light in, in a vacuum. Um, that comes from Einstein's theory of relativity, which is more than a hundred years old and which has withstood every single test that we can throw at it. So it may be that relativity is, is a simplification or that it's wrong, but so far, uh, you know, with a hundred years of testing, it seems pretty rock solid. And that particular theory uh, predicts that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And we do have pretty good experimental evidence also that that's the case. So I never say never, but, you know, I'm, you know, if you, if you ask me to put $10,000, you know, bet $10,000 or $100,000 on uh, nothing, ever being able to travel fast and speed of light, I would happily take that bet. Yeah. Well, um, something I've always wondered, is it hard for scientists like yourself to like watch sci-fi movies because of all the, you know, like fake science in it? Or can you just turn that part of your brain off and enjoy it? So this is something a lot of scientists spend a lot of time debating. I think there's some scientists that can turn their brains off and enjoy it, and I'm definitely one of them. Um, and there are other scientists that just cannot get past um, the, the the errors and to say that this would never happen and this is this is silly. So uh, it really depends. And even I, you know, I love science fiction and I enjoy watching science fiction even when it can't happen. But sometimes there's something so ridiculously stupid that I even I say, you know, that's just dumb, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, I'm more interested in the plot and the way in which fun science fiction can can have a good plot, and I'm, I'm not too worried if it breaks the rules because, you know, it's something I'm doing for fun. Uh, you know, if you're, um, if, if you're a, uh, you know, accountant, you don't go home at night and, and sort of watch TV shows about accountancy um, in the same way. Like, I don't want to come home and read scientific studies. I want, I want to let my hair down, and uh, uh, science fiction is, is a great way to do that. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of, uh, listener questions. If you have time for me to ask them. Yeah, I have to go in just a couple of minutes, but, okay. um, but happy to answer a couple more questions. All right. I'll pick out some of the, the better ones. Um, um, okay. Let's see here. Uh, what is, what is in your opinion, the uh, most fascinating thing that you've been a part of some, a uh, discovery. So I'd say it's a tie. Um, at the moment, the most fascinating thing is the sparse radio bursts that I mentioned earlier. They're this complete mystery, and I, I, I love being part of them. But the other amazing thing that I was involved in in 2004 was uh, a star that gave off a flare. And that's not too unusual. Stars give off flares all the time. But for a moment, this flare was the brightest thing in, in the galaxy. It outshone uh, every star in the galaxy by a factor of a 1,000 for a moment, it gave off more light and more energy than the sun does in a quarter of a million years. Uh, it was so bright that uh, if you were on the International Space Station, the star gave you the equivalent 
uh, radiation dose of a dental x-ray, but from 25,000 light years away. So I was one of the main people who caught that flare and was studying it. And, you know, to have a little star on the other side of the galaxy essentially give you a dental x-ray is, is something really quite unexpected and amazing. That's crazy. Uh, do you think we will discover um, dark matter and be able to fully explain it in your lifetime? That's a tough one. I, I could get in trouble if I say no, but yeah, this is a really tough problem. I, 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 I want to say yes, just because I'm hopeful, but it is a worry that we've spent 30 plus years trying to explain or understand dark matter and we've made no progress. So it may be that we're just stuck on this problem and that we eventually give up. I think we're probably 20 or 30 years away from giving up. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of progress lately, and, and that makes me worry a little bit. But I'm very hopeful still that someone smart will, will crack this and, and figure it out. Instant Nobel Prize for whoever figures it out. Um, so we always like to finish our um, talk with uh, one last question, and we ask everybody that comes on here, what's your favorite breakfast food? My favorite breakfast food? Um, my breakfast is super boring. I'm, I'm normally not really awake and I'm just sort of shoveling something in my mouth to get going. But, uh, my guilty pleasure when I'm on vacation is Cocoa Pops. I don't normally eat them because they're like terribly bad for you. But, you know, when I'm on a holiday, uh, you know, love that crunch, love the chocolate run. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed talking to Aaron. Uh, uh, Thank you for all of those great questions. Um, you know, you've, you've made me think about things in a bit of a different way. I, I love the sports and the gaming analogies, and, uh, uh, you know, I might use them myself. Well, yeah, feel free to use it all yourself. Thank you so much. Um, have a lovely day. Cheers. See you later. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I could have talked to him for about two and a half more hours about this stuff. I, I'm fascinated. I hope that... Um, it didn't come off um, as boring to you guys. I uh, I hope that uh, you learned something. I mean, I know you you enjoyed hearing him talk. Um, it was just me <laughs> interjecting. That was the boring dull parts. But thank you guys so much for uh, everything you've done for us this last month. Uh, our numbers are skyrocketing. We're doing better than ever before, and it's all because of you guys. Uh, I mean, I don't do anything but sit here and talk. Uh, if you want to find us, you can find us on Twitch. You can find us on TikTok. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Pretty much every social um, is Diner Discussions. Uh, and, or if you just search us, you'll find us. Um, we're currently working on a project for movies. Uh, I know we've been doing the movie podcast, but we're going to do something different. But if you want to find Brian, um, he is on Facebook. Uh, just, just search for his name. Um, I, I don't know if he's on Instagram and I forgot to ask him his socials, but, uh, Brian, again, if you're listening, thank you so much for being on. We appreciate it. And remember everybody, you're always welcome in the diner.
Destruction.